Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we thought we'd take another one of our looks at a big company uh, that's in the world of tech. And, uh, and you know, it's been a while since we've done one of these. And we also thought we'd talk about a company that's involved in video games. It's one that has a long history in video games and a controversial one at times. Uh, this also has been something that numerous listeners have requested over the years. If you do not like video games, you have our permission to just, uh, you know, listen to an old episode. But, but, but we promise that we're going to try to make it interesting, even for those of you who don't care that much. Yeah, because there's a lot of impact that this has on the entire industry. And it's really this particular story is pretty interesting. We're specifically talking about Electronic Arts or EA, which a lot of people view these days as some sort of a megalomaniacal corporation bent on uh, dominating the entire video game industry. Yeah. And it's uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it later on, but uh, but but it is one worst company. In America. Twice. Two, two years in a row. Two years in a row. Yeah, yeah. But, but to start off, you know, it's, it, it didn't start off as, as this, uh, company that was bent on, on having a stranglehold on the video game industry. And I'm not saying that that's what EA has now or that's goal. That's what its goal is. <laughs> well, but that's what, that's the popular perception. That, that is. Well, you know, to be fair, it does as of 2013 have 20, uh, 275 million registered players and is operating out of 75 countries. So yeah. it's not doing too shabby. It's not for a tiny itself. company. No. But, uh, but it had, had, uh, interesting beginnings. Now to really understand how EA started, you actually have to go way back before EA was a thing. Uh, and, uh, my first date that I wrote down was in 1953. <laughs> because that's when William M. Tripp Hawkins III was born. Now, this guy is going to be the founder of EA when we get up to that point. But um, he was it was his idea to start up a video game company. And uh, and, he, you know, the way he came about this was as he was growing up and going to school, he started to get really interested in uh, computers in general and games as well. In fact, uh, in 1970, he designed a board game. It was a football board game called AccuStat Pro Football. He, uh, he borrowed $5,000 from his father to get this off the ground, and it was a complete commercial failure. Right. It was his first entrepreneurial attempt, and it, and it failed, which often we can learn a lot more from our failures than our successes. But it teaches us a couple of things about Hawkins, that he's interested in games, and he's interested in football in particular, which becomes extremely evident in, during the the evolution of EA. Right, right. And uh, he he'd started kind of designing stuff. He he was a big D and D player, from what I understand, and um and was really interested in how all of the math and statistics worked. But noticed that a lot of his friends were not interested in doing that at all. And yeah. so he was kind of thinking like, hey. What if? Yeah, he was looking at at different ways of creating sets of rules and and statistics. And and also at the same time, uh, he was starting to get interested in computers. Now, in the early 70s, this is predating the personal computer. If you were interested in computers, it's because you had a job that uh, there were computers at your job or maybe you were attending university and there were computers there. Oh, right, right. In, uh, in 1971, he had his first interaction ever with a prototype microcomputer. This was over at a friend's house and uh, and that kind of set him up for a couple years later. Yeah, in 1973, he has access to a DEC PDP-11 mini computer and he creates a program written in the basic programming language 
that was designed to run simulations of football games. So not exactly a fully interactive gaming experience, more like if I put in every player's stats and then set this to go and have it play out as if it were a game, what would the results be? And he tested it by running a simulation of what was going to be, at that time, the 1974 Super Bowl game. And it turned out that his uh, his game ended up predicting the final score fairly closely. Uh, in his game, it said that the Dolphins would win over Minnesota 23 to 6. And the real score was actually 24 to 7. So uh, at least in that sense, the statistics seemed to hold true. Now, of course, we all know that in reality, uh, from a day-to-day basis, statistics can give you an indication of how things might go. But there's no guarantee that's how they will go. Right. That, yeah. So so luck could have certainly been involved in that one. But, right. you know, non- nonetheless, he, he was a student at Harvard at the time. Uh, he he graduated with a self-designed major in uh, strategy and applied game theory. Uh, That's an interesting major right there. Yeah, well, especially for, for 1973. Yeah, right, right. He, he says that he spent a couple of years convincing Harvard to, to let him get that degree because that was what he wanted and uh, would go on to get an MBA from Stanford. Yep. And uh, when he graduated in 1978 with that MBA, he went to work for a little company called Apple. And at that time, it really was a little company. You know, yeah, I, they had uh, just, just about 50 employees at the time. Yeah, 50 employees he had joined Early on, this is, of course, you know, right at the very onset of the personal computer era. The Apple II was the first computer from Apple to really hit it off in the market. The yeah. first Apple was mostly adopted by people who were hobbyists or really had a fascination with computers, but it was not a commercial success. It what didn't run away with the market. Apple II was a totally different story. That was the one that a, a larger niche began to get interested in personal computers. It still was still, you know, kind of in the hobbyist era, but uh, it, it was a, a looser definition of hobbyist at that point, not just people who are obsessed with computers. Right, right. And I mean that in the nicest way. <laughs> I I come from a family that's part of this niche. So <laughs> Yeah. Hawkins has said that in uh, 1977, he saw an Apple II at a computer fair mm-hmm. and realized that this was kind of, you know, he had been churning around this, this concept of of games and computers and, and programming for a couple of years and, and decided that Apple was, yes, the way to go. He's not the only one either. There were a lot of early game developers who were looking at personal computers as the platform of choice, and many of them uh, uh, showed an early preference for the Apple II. Uh, Richard Garriott of Origin also had that same fascination. So Hawkins works for Apple. By 1982, he was the director of strategy and marketing at Apple Computer. So mm-hmm. from he had uh, moved up, yeah, yeah, the, the, those humble beginnings, and of course by then Apple was doing very, very well. And uh, had already had its initial public offering, which netted Hawkins quite a bit of of money. Mm -hmm. And so he made a big, risky decision. He decided that his fascination of games and computers needed to really be uh, indulged. And so he left Apple Computer. Well, he supposedly had had decided almost a decade prior that in that that 1982 would be the year for him to start a business, to start a, a, a computer business and wow. that, that that would be the year that, that the home computing market had caught up to his desire to play in it. Now, now I on, both of us honestly don't know whether or not that's truly what he thought. That's some of the stuff. Some of the stuff he says, he says, well, after the, oh, the time, right? Yeah, and it's it could be retconned is all I'm saying. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I'm not saying he definitely did do that. I'm just, I have a little bit of skepticism. Either, either way, on uh, May 28th, 1982, fun fact, the day before I was born, um, in case Oy. anyone needed to feel really old right now. Thank um, you, Lauren. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, uh, he, he incorporated Electronic Arts, and and this was not going. To, this was not the original name that he had no. thought of for the company. No, no, uh, he actually originally wanted to call it Amazon Software, uh, but that just didn't seem to really click. Uh, he he got a bunch of people together to try and uh, brainstorm an idea. He had actually used two hundred thousand dollars of his own money to fund this early part of the company, uh, and he they started thinking about other possible names. One of the names they came up with was Soft Art. But the head of another company that was called uh, Software Arts asked him if he would reconsider naming his company that just to avoid any confusion, and he agreed to do that. Had another brainstorming session and came up with Electronic Arts along with a a team of other folks and marketing people as well, an outside marketing company. And Electronic Arts was born. They would actually receive, by the end of 1982, $2 million in venture capital from Sequoia Capital. And Sequoia Capital even gave them some office space to work out of before they had any sort of physical headquarters. Oh, right, right. Uh, very originally, I think he worked out of his own home uh, when he was hiring his first couple of people. And uh, uh, all, all of these people that he was hiring at the time and, and the naming of the company kind of came about because he really wanted, um, he really believed that computer games are an art form. Yes. And wanted um, wanted the game company to operate kind of like a music label. Um, yep. And this is really evident in some of their early marketing campaigns and attempts. You know, they, they would get these game developers together and pose them like rock stars, have have rock music photographers come in and do these gorgeous photographs of them and and really concentrate on the software artist. Yeah, even the art they would use in their the, the games they sold, which at, in those days, games didn't come in, in boxes yet. They were in usually plastic bags and you, you had some art that would be included, but it, it looked pretty... It looked like a lot Stark, of yeah. yeah. It looked like a lot of these games came out of someone's garage, and here's here's a fun fact: a lot of them did. <laughs> um, but uh, EA they took an approach where they really put a lot of graphic design work into the uh, the art that was included with the games, and there were several sources I read that likened the the art on the games to album to art Albemarle, yeah. that you would see on what we used to, you know, buy music on, which were these giant vinyl albums. I actually kids are doing that again now, but they are. It's come back, back around. There was a while where I would say vinyl album and I just get that blank stare. Um those days appear to have disappeared again for at least a while, but We'll see if that keeps up. Uh, it, they actually moved to a headquarters in San Mateo, California, and they were there for quite a few years. Uh, ultimately, they ended up moving again, but and also, uh, you know, EA expanded greatly. But we'll get into all of that. So their early, early efforts were concentrated on a few titles, uh, and they they wanted to produce all of their games internally. They wanted to be a publisher, a developer, and a distributor. So these are all different parts of the the video game industry. And you can have a company that's just one of these things, or you can have a company that does multiple uh, uh, roles here. Uh, but to break it down, essentially you have publishers. That, these are the companies that fund the development of video games. Now, they might have a development team within the publisher, or they may pay an independent developer to create a game. But they are the ones who say, here's some money. We believe in the project that you have pitched. 
Why don't you go ahead and build that game? Then you give us the game and we will make sure the game gets to uh, distributors who will then make sure the game gets to stores. And then the way it generally works, if, it, if you're talking about an independent developer and a publisher, the publisher will give an advance to the developer, and that advance is against any future royalties that the game sells until you pay off that advance. And then you usually have some sort of royalty sharing program where the publisher gets a certain amount of the money from sales and the developer gets another, uh, you know, a percentage of those sales as well. Uh, but the advance has to be paid off first because that's the initial investment the publisher makes to the developer. Developers are, of course, those are the people who develop the games. They're the ones who actually build the games. So again, it can be an independent company. It could be part of a publisher. It could be part of a distributor. Uh, there are all different types of models out there. But these are the people actually building the code, making the art, writing the games. That's, that's who creative those end. are. Yeah. yeah. Then you've got the distributors. Now, these are the people who are responsible for delivering finished games from publishers and delivering them to retail establishments and other outlets. So they sell game, uh, publishers sell their games to distributors and then the distributors take those games and sell them to the retail operators who then sell them to the public. So, uh, EA was all three of these things. Oh, right. And at the time, Hawkins has said that he, he had done a lot of market research and that 135 of his competitors were doing the same thing, um, which which seems like an awfully large number. Although at the time in, in 1983, uh, we were just on the verge of a, of a little bit of a, of a market crash. Oh, yeah. Not, in, a little bit. A little bit is a little bit is understating it. Yeah. Uh, but 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 during this boom, there were there was a lot going on. Um, and uh, and also the, the, the concept reminds me a lot a lot of Apple's uh, Apple is a really terrific example of vertical integration, mm-hmm. and um, and from his time at Apple, I feel like probably that's one of the the places where he picked up this concept. Gotcha. Yeah, and and those early titles that first came out, the the first six titles from EA included games called uh, Hard Hat Mac, which was kind of like a Mario clone. Um, it's uh, or Donkey Kong clone. I really should say not Mario, but a Donkey Kong clone. Uh, it was a platforming game, a side, uh, not even a side scrolling. It was, you know, kind of like Donkey Kong. The, <clears throat> then you had the pinball construction set. Uh, there was a game called which, you know, lets you build pinball systems. Then you had uh, Archon, which was kind of a weird fantasy strategy game that was part chess, part uh, action game. The idea being that you have two sides. Uh, uh, two sides have different pieces that are kind of like chess pieces. Uh, the different pieces have different abilities, and you try to take over your opponent's territory. Whenever one of your pieces comes in contact with an opponent's piece, you then have a little arcade-like battle little between fight. the two. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and cool. depending upon what your piece is, you might be able to really whoop up on your opponent because you're faster or your shots do a lot more damage. Uh, and and so it was uh, all about strategy. Like, I, I want to make sure this piece goes up against my that piece my opponent has so I can I can win the game. Uh, you can kind of tell that I played the heck out of this game. I, mean, <laughs> I, I By the way, I, I also owned the pinball construction set and I owned Hard Hat Mac. Then there was uh, Mule, which was another strategy game. Uh, a lot of people who uh, enjoyed this really like things like uh, uh, war gaming, where you would have the big table with all the hexagons sure. on it and you move the pieces around. Mule was kind of the computer version of that. Yeah, it was really built for four players, which at the time was was kind of unheard of. Yeah, and and I never got into it because I, my brain does not work that way. Uh, I can I can 
do well enough in Archon, uh, because even if my strategy skills aren't that great, my Twitch skills were good enough to help me get by. But Mule, not so much. Uh, then there was Worms, which was kind of a high concept game where you would train these what they called worms, these 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 lines of light to behave in a certain way in order to progress in the game. And it's very difficult to explain. Uh, and I've always seen people who say, if you want to play the game, if you want to try it out, find a copy of it and, and give it a whirl. I mean, you can find stuff like this on the Internet. Uh, you should do it without reading the instructions just to see if you can figure out what the heck is going on. Um, and I mean, I read a description of this and I'm not sure I would be able to figure it out. Uh, but maybe it's more intuitive than the descriptions would give you, uh, than the, the descriptions seem to indicate. And then the last of the six titles that they launched with, uh, when they, the company was first offering up games was Murder on the Zinderneuf, which I know nothing about. Uh, I did not own that one. Yeah, I, I I should put in that I have played zero of these games. I feel well, they you know, right around when you were one, so I'm not surprised. Uh, so, but I I, I had most of these games because they came out for the Apple II, and we had an Apple II, and. Uh, actually, what happened was uh, a local school had purchased a bunch of games, and then they gave them to me to test and tell them which ones were educational and which ones were not really educational. So I did, and then I returned all the games. And they said, all right, you can keep all the ones that aren't educational. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, as a kid, I was like, cha-ching. <laughs> And um, and so yeah, I, I ended up with a lot of uh, a lot of early games. It's also also how I ended up learning about the Ultima series because Ultima Two was one of those games. But uh, uh, yeah, so there was that was the initial launching title. But there were some other ones that came out shortly thereafter. Uh, there was the Last Gladiator, which is a game I also owned, um, though that one didn't come in the batch. I won that one. As a uh, in, as a part of a lip syncing contest, oh, yeah. What what pray tell were you lip syncing? Uh, me and my dad did a lip syncing routine to Ray Stevens' "The Pirate Song," which is all about a pirate who wants to sing and dance and wear bright shiny pants. Well, that's that's a. Uh... That's awesome. Yeah, we won first place, which was a $50 gift certificate to a local comic store. And I don't read comic books, so I bought all their computer games instead. And one of them was The Last Gladiator. And that was a game where you play as a little gladiator and all these different monsters come out. And based upon whatever weapon you have at your disposal, you have, uh, you know, decent chances against them. And it gets more and more difficult as the game goes on. You know, it's kind of a typical arcadey experience. Um they also had the, they launched a game that would end up being sort of the genesis of EA Sports. Dr. J and Larry Bird go one on one. I'm told this is from a sport called basketball. That's the one. That's the one with the orange round thing, correct? Uh, I'm, I want to say yes. Uh, yeah, this this was one of the earliest. Uh, well, it was the earliest sports game from EA and Hawkins really struck on a brilliant idea. He had decided to try and approach people who were famous in various sports and to license their their names. Get that media tie-in, yeah. Right, yeah. They get a promotional tie-in from famous, famous athletes. I mean, Dr. J and Larry Bird were... Especially at you know, the time. Very oh, yeah. Fam- yeah, hugely, they're world hugely, famous. Right. And, and which is interesting because they were world famous since they were playing an American sport that was almost exclusively played in America. Um, they ended up... That they ended up paying off big time. Uh, it ended up being a, a strategy that EA still to this day employs. 
they also established a new policy, which was to, in order to keep more of the profits that it would get from its, uh, from the sales, it was going to reduce the discount it gave software distributors for its games, meaning that, uh, they, they were essentially selling their games at a higher cost to stores saying, all right, well, you know, we're no longer going to sell this game to you at $10 a copy. We're going to sell it to you for $30 a copy. And, uh, and, you know, you, it's your truck, uh, it's your, problem to figure out how to sell this. So if you're if you usually sell your games at $40, now you're paying 30 bucks to sell it for 40, your profit margin has shrunk as a software distri- uh, a software retail store. Um, you know, do you continue trying to do that? Do you hike your prices up and hope that people are willing to pay it? Uh EA's point was that hey, we're starting to make a name for ourselves. People know our product and they like it. So if uh, if they like it and y- this is the only way they can get it, then you're going to have to play ball with us. And this is sort of the first example of EA really throwing its weight around. Yeah. This was also the year that it uh, made its conference debut at the Consumer Electronics Show. And so, it, yeah, they, they were really, really getting out there in the public and starting to make make waves. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is all in the first year that they're actually offering games. You know, they, they had been a company for a while, but of course, you know, as soon as they became a company, it didn't mean that they had games to offer everybody. Immediately, they had to develop sure. them. Uh, they also had established these ideas that, you know, every single person who worked on the game was going to be credited. If you were the creator of a game, your name was front and center on the, the game's, uh, screens. It would let you know that this was a game developed by so and so. And that was a response to a lot of the, the activity they were seeing on the console market, particularly with Atari, uh, in that there were people who were essentially anonymous game developers who had put in hours and hours and hours of time to create video games, but there was no sign of credit for them on a vi- on the actual video games. It was just, you know, is this is, you know... X title from X company. Sure, yeah. The 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 word that I've seen tossed around in a lot of uh, articles about it is is serfs. That they, these people were being treated like serfs. Right. And uh, and Hawkins was was uh, saying that you know so, so some of these kids that he'd met out at Apple were were and I quote legitimate divas and and mm. that they deserved better than that. Yeah, and, and they. Let's make it clear. EA was not the only company doing this. There were other companies that split off from Atari, for example, that were founded by developers who wanted to have more uh, more control and more credit for the work that they were doing. So EA is one example of that, but it's by no means the only example of that. Now, uh, in 1984... Uh, Larry Probst joined the company as the vice president of sales, and he will become really important to EA. He was already important at that point, but becomes even more so over the years. Uh, and EA begins to distribute games from other companies, not just their own company. So now they're becoming a distributor for other uh, publishers. And uh, one of the first ones was Lucasfilm Games. There was also SSI and Interplay. They all used Electronic Arts as a uh, distributor. So now they're bringing in money not only from the games that they are developing in their their own house, but also from, from other outside. developers. Sure. Right. Yeah, this was this was the year that the that the video game market really crashed, um, yeah. or, or was really feeling all of the effects of the crash. Um, and this was. Due, due to a lot of a lot of things, but yeah. um, but but mostly, you know, Atari had been kind of sort of driving the market into the ground for a minute. Yeah, yeah, the the market was 
completely flooded with games and and not good games yeah, necessarily. Yeah, there were some there were some great titles that were among the ones that came out that year, but there were Atari had essentially lowered the bar so far for anyone to submit games to the console that it was flooded with games that were just rushed, that had bad art, that were poorly constructed, that were impossible to play. Um, and, and the, this made people stop wanting to buy games because they were just not fun. Right. And also there were so many consoles on the market. You know, it, it had kind of boomed and, and these things cost four to eight hundred dollars in today's in today's concept of the dollar. Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, it was it was not sustainable at no, the time no. with, with the quality of games that were coming out. It, there was such an early boom that it was just a rush, right? And then the rush was followed by a bubble bursting, which we see all the time, not just in, in a, technology, but in all kinds of markets. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, as a, a game company, Electronic Arts had a tough year ahead of it because, you know, that was... It was affected too. It, even though a lot of its games were being made for PCs, computers, for computers. Right. Mm-hmm. I was saying PCs, but really at this time we weren't really calling them PCs yet. But yeah, they were being made for computers. It still was affected because, uh, you know, a lot of consumers got jaded on the concept of games in the first place. That was, however, the year that they published a game called The Seven Cities of Gold, which I also owned. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was known for being a terrible, terrible colonist colonialist, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. I would go in and wreak havoc on the various Mayan and Aztec cultures and plunder them. Yeah. I've, bo- I've, I've, I've heard that it was a very educational game. Ed- edutainment. Edutainmentable? Yeah, game? I want to say that I mm. bought that one and that one was not part of the package because if it were part of the package, then obviously I fibbed about it being educational. Uh, and then EA began to switch its strategy at this point when the video game market had crashed. Uh, And instead of marketing games as being from specific creators, the way they had been, where they had made these developers rock rock stars, stars, right? Uh, They were instead going to look at creating actual brands and genres. So uh, instead of saying from the mind of so-and-so, they said, why don't we find a game that really resonates with people and then just uh, continue to create games within that brand that title or and, mm-hmm. or even just within that type of gameplay. Uh, this would actually end up being something that people would criticize EA for years later to the point where they. Well, they've, they've taken it to something of an extreme, but, yeah, but we'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, yes. And they also decided to start making games for lots of different platforms. So besides the Apple II, they started looking at um, the Macintosh, which was brand new in 1984, uh, the Amiga, uh, the Commodore 64, uh, IBM compatibles, which were just starting to take off right around then. Uh, the Atari 800 and the Atari ST. So that's kind of where we are post-video game crash. And there's a lot more to cover. But before we get into the second half of part one of the EA story, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. All right, we're back. And let's go back into what's going on with EA. So 1985 comes around. And uh, EA starts releasing a bunch of games, including some that were really famous in the fantasy gaming genre. Uh, the big one being The Bard's Tale, which I also owned. I, I did. I did not. I. I, I think. I know. I'm sorry. Well, it was very Dungeons and Dragons ish. Mm-hmm. You would control a party of players. You would. You would generate characters and then put them together in a party. And. Uh, 
this was kind of standard for a lot of other video games at the time. Wizardry was very similar in this respect, right? Uh, where you would uh, uh, have certain number of fighters, a certain number of magic users, maybe a thief or even a bard who could uh, affect the way the party performed by playing different songs. That was one of the big innovative gameplay elements of the Bard's Tale. So, you know, play a little song and then everyone gets gets all amped up and they, they fight better. Or you play another song and everyone's starting to feel kind of chill and they start healing and faster. That's and, that's terrific. Useful bards. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to. And uh, there's this guy. This guy's singing again. We can't get him to shut up. Mm. We've broken four lutes and he doesn't get the hint. Uh, well, the other the alternative title for the Bard's Tale was Tales of the Unknown, Volume 1. And it was a, a fantasy RPG. And uh, you, un, there was something really creative about the Bard's Tale series, which was that you could import players from other games. Oh, right. On, on certain platforms, uh, Apple II was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You could you could pull in things from from Ultima, which was from Origin Systems. That was not part of Electronic Arts at that time. Or from the aforementioned Wizardry, which was from Surtech, also not part of EA. So these are games made by other companies and it uh, allowed interoperability in the sense that you could pull like if you had played the, this other game and you had these characters that you had developed some sort of emotional attachment to and you had really invested in this game, you could then pull those characters into the Bard's Tale and use them again in a totally different game, which was kind of an awesome idea. Yeah. Uh, I will say that from my own personal experience from playing Wizardry and then pulling characters in from Wizardry into the Bard's Tale, they ended up being a tad overpowered. Hmm. Like to the point where the f- whole first section of the game was pointless to play because you just would, you know, blast. Yeah, anything it, was, within a, mm-hmm. it was essentially like if I were to encounter a moth and, and you were to give me a sledgehammer, uh, you know, that's kind of the way it felt. But it was still a really cool uh, game mechanic. Now, in 1986 and in 1988, they would release sequels to the Bard's Tale. So you get Bard's Tale 2 and Bard's Tale 3. Uh, I remember Bard's Tale 3 in particular. That was the one I played the most. And uh, in 2004, we saw the release of The Bard's Tale. But this is a game that was not released by EA, nor was it connected directly to the Bard's Tale games. But it was created by someone who had worked on the, the first two. That's right. Yeah. the One of the people who helped develop the maps in the first two Bard's Tale games was the developer behind The Bard's Tale, the 2004 game. So I remember being, being excited when that game came out because I thought, oh, they're relaunching this, this franchise that I loved as a kid. Nah, not um, so much. Yeah, it was more just the name. Uh, I was still a fantasy RPG, and you played a character who was a uh, very snarky thief bard character, voiced by Carrie Elwes. Oh man, well that yeah. sounds uh, that sounds worth playing just for just for that performance. It was it was, Maybe, it was entertaining. Possibly. You had a narr- the first five minutes. You had, a, you had a narrator, and you had uh, Carrie Elwes's character, and they would bicker as you played. So that was kind of fun, but it again didn't relate back to the Bard's Tale games of my youth. Uh, so I was tricked there. Trixie. Uh, 1985 was also when EA released their first productivity uh, application, which was called Deluxe Paint. Uh, it was a program for the Commodore Amiga, which was known as a machine that was particularly powerful when it came to graphics and sound. Uh, when you compared it against the other computers, the Amiga blew them away as far as that. I mean, I, I had a friend who had an Amiga, and I remember just 
being completely flabbergasted that a computer could do what his Amiga could do as far as graphics and sound were concerned. Because when you compared it to my Apple II or my 286, it just, uh, it, it outperformed them hands down in that. So it was a great game platform. But this was a painting platform or a painting application, I should say. And it was, uh, based off of an in-house art development tool that, that EA had been using that they called Prism. So they essentially oh, took cool. this in-house tool uh-huh. and then packaged it and changed it a bit for consumers. You so said, hey, kids, kids would be into this too. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we're using this to develop games, but I think people would really be interested in using this for themselves. So I mean, I'm sure they tweaked it so that it would make sense to a consumer. Uh, but, right, uh, hopefully. Yeah. Or not just release it the way it was. I mean, cause, you know, things, things make, you have different kinds of tools for people who are professionals in an industry and people who are just, uh, uh interested Hobbyists, in it. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was an interesting departure from just creating games. Um, I don't have anything for 1986. Oh, and I should say, I didn't say this at the top of the show, but we're not going to cover every release EA ever made. Because, first of all, that would take us about five hours, I think, just to list every game. Yeah. And second of all, that would, that would be a really boring podcast. Right. That would be, that would be like, like, yeah. Even for our threshold. That would be boring. So we don't want to. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But no, I yeah, I agree entirely. And so we're going to mention some of the big ones, obviously, especially the ones that ended up being disruptive to EA or to the industry. But um, but in this case, we're we're just kind of skimming through some of the big ones and not hitting every single one. So 1987 was when EA set up a European division to market PC games. Now, at this point, it was just to kind of uh, be a marketing firm, not a development house. Right. But uh, they saw a lot of opportunity to expand into Europe. Uh, the The problem with Europe was that it was being very it was very slow to adopt consoles. It was, this is true later on when we start getting into the, uh, advanced consoles too, the ones like our, the current the generation. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. PlayStation forward. Uh, Europe, it's not that Europe was, uh, not interested in it, it's just it was slower to adopt it than other, uh, markets. So EA was trying to really invest in what they saw as being an, a huge Untapped area for opportunity. Source, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that's, that was the beginning of that. And in 1988, EA released Wasteland, which was a post-apocalyptic role-playing game. That's pretty, you know, innovative. There were some other post-apocalyptic RPG type stuff that was out for computers. Uh, some of them were just text-based games, not even, uh, graphics games. Right. But, but, uh, uh, but yeah, Wasteland is one that, that I, I, I still, we are still not in the era of, of me playing video games that are not, um, maybe Super Mario Brothers, but, uh, Boy. but, but, <laughs> but I, but I, a lot of my friends speak with, speak of it with a lot of nostalgia. See, the reason why I know so many of these EA titles is because I followed the same kind of pathway that EA did in that, uh, I abandoned consoles shortly after the Atari era and moved on to PCs because I saw it as being a, a platform that would allow for more sophisticated types of games. And that's something that Hawkins himself had said as well. It's one of the reasons why EA in its early days focused on computers, not on con- consoles. There were other reasons as well. Like if you want to build a console or a game for a console, it gets pretty expensive from a production standpoint because you have to manufacture the cartridges. You have to build the ROMs directly onto chips. You have to build the cases, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so there were higher costs associated with producing 
a a video game cartridge than a computer disc. Absolutely. So uh, they had their own reasons for really focusing on computers mm-hmm. versus consoles. But also, yeah, the, the the console market didn't really recover until until the NES came out, did it? Yeah, yeah. Right around the uh, around eighty eight, that's when EA started to reevaluate this position of focusing on PC only instead of or computers only, since in PC we tend to think of as uh, anything that runs DOS or Windows. Uh, but anyway, uh, at that that time, that's when EA was starting to really look at the NES and say, well, maybe there's a reason to get into this. Uh, now, entering into any kind of agreement with Nintendo was something that Hawkins was a bit reluctant to do because Nintendo had very strict licensing agreements and standards that you had to meet because Nintendo did not want another video game crash. They didn't, Absolutely. Didn't, They're being very careful about what they published. Exactly. They did not want the market flooded with bad games. Not to say that every game that came out for the NES was amazing, but they were trying to keep as much of a, a control on that as possible. And, you know, that's something that publishers or, or game developers might view as being uh, a barrier. You know, they might go through the trouble of developing a game only to hit a roadblock with the licensing problem. And then you've got all this time and energy and money that was spent on something that you can't actually sell. So there was a big issue there, but they did decide to start developing games for the NES. And the first one was Skate or Die, which uh, my friends who had NESs, they loved that game. I did not have an NES, so uh, I was largely ignorant of it. I was still playing the computer games at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, instead of just publishing the game directly and distributing it, they actually licensed it out to Konami. Uh, and then Hawkins said that the console market was still just unproven, that, that the, the crash from before was so devastating that you could not be certain it wouldn't happen again. And also, again, said that consoles were kind of underpowered when you compared them to computers. Um, now, they would later really revisit this, especially once the Sega Genesis came out, uh, and, and their, their tune changes dramatically. But at that time, they were really saying computers are really, that's, that's our main focus. Consoles are something we might do as a side project. Sure. So in 1988, they released a game that became one of the most important franchises in the company's history. And I am, of course, talking about John Madden Football. Uh, Hawkins has a lot of, uh, it, there are a lot of interviews with Hawkins where he talks about his fond memories of developing that game, about bringing John Madden into the experience and saying that, you know, we would show him how we were doing things and then he would spend the next 20 minutes yelling at us about how we got it wrong. And, uh, but it was always in an effort to make sure the game was as good as it possibly could be. So while Madden's approach was what some people might call aggressive, <laughs> it meant that they were working on making a, a really good football game, or at least that was their, that was the goal. And it did become one of the most successful franchises in oh, yeah. EA's history. Yeah. As of 2013, uh, there are 24 games out and it sold uh, 99 million units. Now we'll talk more about some controversy with Madden football, but that really plays in uh, a few years down the line. Uh, in 1989, they began to develop games for the Sega Genesis console. And this is when they started to really rethink that approach and say, all right, maybe consoles are actually important enough for us to c- 
consider it being a main line of business, not just some little side business where we can make a little extra money. There might be some serious cash in this business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hawkins has said that um, that this deal that he made with with Sega was kind of a crowning moment, and uh, has has said that he had been um, kind of stealthily reverse engineering the 60-bit Sega Genesis for a couple of years, and that when Sega found out about this, um, you know, it's it's. It could have gone one of two ways. Either Sega could have sued him a whole lot, or they could have created this this kind of awesome contract for for creating games. Yeah. And and it went. You know, Hawkins has said that yes, that this is one of his big wins yeah. in life. He essentially said that that he negotiated an incredibly favorable deal for Electronic Arts. This was something he could not do with Nintendo because Nintendo held so much of the power in that relationship. And, uh, you know, when it comes to big business guys, you know, whoever holds the power, that, that becomes an important part of, of any deal. And it was certainly something that Hawkins was very concerned about. Even if you think back to the days of him saying, you know, I want this company to be about video games and art, you can tell there's still a cutthroat businessman lurking underneath that artist's exterior there. And, um, and so, yeah, this was a great example of that. And uh, in the fall of 1989, that's when Electronic Arts held its initial public offering, the IPO. That's when it became a publicly traded company. And uh, Hawkins decided in order to really justify going public and to to get investors excited and invested in the company and to really increase the value of the company, to uh, initiate a policy where Every single month, he expected there to be three new games entering into the development process. Wow. Not, not completed, but, de- but sure. entered into. Yeah. So, you know, that, that would mean that as time goes on, you have more and more overlapping games until some come out for publication while others are entering the development process. It, uh, it set a pretty tough standard. Uh, but, and also they were handling games from other developers at this point too. So that, this didn't even uh, include those games. Right, right. Uh, the the company at the time was worth about sixty million. Yeah, and uh, and of course the the value of the company now is in the billions. But we'll again address that when we get further up into right. the timeline. Uh, and in ninety one, that is a momentous year for both Hawkins and for EA. That's when Trip Hawkins decided to leave EA. Uh, he had felt that he had accomplished all he wanted with the company and that it was time for him to move on to something new and challenging. And that new and challenging thing ended up being 3DO, which was, um, you know, the whole idea was he was going to create a video game console that would lead the market. It would be the most powerful, uh, uh, console. And it actually, it was, predictive of the consoles that we see today. It was meant to be sort of an entertainment center, not just a video game console. But it was really expensive. Uh, it also, the games that first came out for the 3DO didn't get a lot of critical acclaim, and a lot of them uh, relied heavily on full motion video. That was when full motion video was just becoming possible in the computer right. and console worlds. So people were using it a lot to the point where it became a gimmick. You know, you thought that, oh, this game is good because it has full motion video in it. That, and, you know, full motion video, like any other tool, is just a tool. It's just a tool, yeah. If you're, if you're using 3D, for example, these days, it's just a, just a gimmick. It's just a gimmick. Yeah, exactly. So, and that was the, that was the ultimate problem with 3DO, which, uh, spoiler alert, did not take off. No. It, it actually, it, it, 
kind of language. Yeah. yeah. Uh, meanwhile, back at EA, Larry Probst steps Stepped in. in. Mm-hmm. He becomes the CEO of EA. Uh, and uh, Nintendo, that same year, in 91, launched the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES, or SNES, if you insist on pronouncing it that way. And then EA began to develop games both for the Genesis and for Nintendo, and uh, in an effort to really kind of hit as many fans as possible. They also said they prefer there to be lots of different consoles competing in the market because that means there's not one dominant player that can use the leverage against them. Right. You know, when there are a lot of different players out there, then EA has the advantage, mm-hmm. uh, which has been an important part of the company's yeah, uh, no, it's it's, it's a really clever uh, business business standpoint. Yeah, it's another one of those things that some people get a little. Well, I think people want games to be fun, and they don't want to think about the business end of it because the business end is not necessarily fun. It can be pretty, right. pretty, pretty grim. Grim, yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, that that was uh, that was starting to take off right in '91, and um, that was when EA made its first uh, real acquisition which was distinctive software. So they bought an outside development studio. The idea was to kind of, uh, they, they saw talent out there that they wanted to get. And instead of trying to hire the talent away, they thought, well, we're a larger company now. We're, we're publicly traded. We're highly valued. Let's use this opportunity to purchase this other company and make it part of what we do. And uh, distinctive uh, software was the company that had created the test drive series for uh, Accolade. Which, of course, was a, a competing company to Electronic Arts. And so this same division ended up creating a new line of games for Electronic Arts called Need for Speed. You may have heard of. Yeah, yeah you may have played those games. Uh, and then eventually, Distinctive Studios was renamed EA Canada. and it's, it's Because a, it was located out in uh, British Columbia. That's correct, over in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Yeah, that was, uh, 1991 was also the year that uh, the EA established EA Sports as a division. Yeah, so now we finally have an actual formal division within Electronic Arts that is overseeing the development of sports titles. And a lot of big sports titles came out of that division. Madden football, FIFA, games that were related to hockey, to basketball. Um, and of course, that'll become more important as well. But for now, I think 1991 is a good time for us to leave off. That was that big year, you know, Hawkins leaving and Probst taking over. And we can pick up again in 1992 in part two of our story of EA. So guys, uh, if you have a suggestion for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company we should cover or a particular type of technology or just a concept that you think we need to really explore, let us know. You can send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery. Discovery.com, or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW, and Lauren and I will talk to you again about EA, as it turns out, really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>